Welcome to season two of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. We're launching this podcast to highlight the stories of everyday community leaders who break down barriers to entry for underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs. Today, we'll be speaking with David Kenny, who is the executive director and president at Virtue Labs. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's nice to be here with you. David, can you introduce Virtue Labs and the work that you're doing at the company? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Virtue Lab is a nonprofit organization that's focused on unleashing innovation and entrepreneurship to reverse climate change, address other environmental challenges, and to contribute to shared economic prosperity. And so we do that by by supporting early stage entrepreneurs developing technology solutions to the climate crisis and other environmental problems. And um, we provide both investment capital to them. um, And by being a nonprofit, we're able to provide funding that's more patient and risk tolerant than conventional investment. And then we have a whole suite of support programs, recognizing that at this early stage, entrepreneurs have more needs than just capital. That's often the most pressing one that they're most aware of, but there's a lot of other support that they need. So we provide a variety of programs um, that, that provide that help to them. And is this a national, international program? Uh, where are your small businesses and founders coming from? Yeah, that's a great question. We, we have our roots in the state of Oregon in the United States. We, um, we started as an economic development initiative funded by our state government, and we've, we've since expanded. Um, a lot of our programs have a regional focus in the Pacific Northwest, um, including Western Canada. Um, and we re- recently launched a climate impact fund, which is a $5 million investment fund that will invest in startups, and its geographic scope includes anywhere in the U.S. and Canada. And any uh, founder or organization uh, head that's listening to this podcast can apply for this fund. Yeah, yeah, we have uh, we have uh, information on our website and uh, an application process right right there on the website. Um, it's you know there are specific criteria and things that we're looking for, just like any fund, and we're you know we're very focused on proprietary technologies that can really contribute meaningfully to addressing the climate crisis. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? What is your inspiration for getting into this line of work? Yeah, um, I this job has been great for me because it's a perfect intersection of my my professional background, which has been a, kind of a generalist in business. I, I have an MBA and then went to work in management consulting at, at Deloitte and then spent 12 years at Intel Corporation in a variety of business functions, um, finance, business operations, um, and uh, strategic relationship building, and um, really enjoyed sort of solving business problems and thinking about business strategy, um, and you know, and, and the interplay between the numbers, the financials, um, and marketing opportunities and product development. Um, but I also grew up as an environmentalist and um, someone who was really passionate about. Um, solving the problems in the world, um, you know, humanitarian problems as well. But I've always had this sort of this connection to nature that um, I, I really felt like, even though Intel was a great place for me to learn, I, I felt like I really wanted my career to be somewhere where I was directly contributing to problems that were meaningful to me. And so um, I, I joined this organization as its first employee 
Um, I can't take credit for founding it because uh, the state government had already sort of had this idea to create this and there was funding available, um, but I, I was the first person hired to, to start and lead the organization um, back in 2008. Were you always uh, climate conscious? Was it something that uh, was based on where you grew up? How did you get into uh, with this focus on climate? Yeah, I, you know, it's it started like a lot of environmentalists. I think it starts with just like being in nature, in the outdoors, camping, hiking. Um, you know, passionate about wilderness and uh, and you know, sort of t- trees and lakes and rivers and clean water. Um, and then over time, you know, sort of recognizing the connection between human actions, um, you know, industry, buildings, vehicles. All of the things, all of their contributions to to that uh, natural system, and um, realizing that you know just just protecting um, some natural areas isn't sufficient to uh, addressing um, sort of a, a more sustainable future. And um, it was around 2003, I think, is when I sort of became aware of this growing sustainability movement that uh, you know that word became popular and. Um, uh, and really you know, sort of seeing all of these things as connected and that we need to change the way we do everything really. And, and, I, um, and, and then Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth movie, you know, was, uh, was impactful for me as well. And so all of, all of those things really kind of contributed to me taking a broader view of my sort of my focus, which had been more, you know, like we need to preserve nature, uh, make sure there's always these places for me to go backpacking and, you know, to, to really, we need to rethink our economic systems, our human systems, um, the way we do things in a way that they're not constantly destroying the things that we're trying to protect. I love this conversation because it's at the intersection of economic development, which in my mind is wealth creation and saving the environment, which is giving back, right? Uh, is this the model that you have where you're incentivizing small businesses to uh, think about product development and uh, starting businesses in areas that can have this dual or even triple bottom line impact? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm always bothered by this idea that that somehow protecting the environment is, is, is a bad economic, you know, it costs money and therefore is, is bad for our economy. Um, you know, what's bad for our economy is destroying the natural resources that we depend on to, to generate value in our economy. And, and so I, um, uh, you know, I think every business that we support is a living model um, for, you know, sort of a different way of thinking about that. And um, I don't think of, of the environment and the economy at odds at all. And, and I, I really think, you know, if you get into the numbers, you know, clean energy jobs, um, you know, clean energy produces more high quality jobs than dirty energy does. Um, and, you know, for the same economic value produced and the same amount of energy produced, you're creating more more jobs, more value, um, and obviously the environmental benefits uh, are there as well. And, um, and then clean technology in general as an industry sector um, creates more manufacturing jobs than a lot of other types of, of uh, economic uh, contributors. And so, you know, within a, I work closely with our state government on their economic development work in Oregon. And, um, you know, I think we need all different types of jobs and, you know, the traditional tech, digital tech is great, um, but the, the thing that our companies produce is actually factories. Um, and we've, we've got examples 
of um, you know, factories employing dozens or hundreds of people now um, that are a result of developing clean technologies that are, that are addressing um, energy transportation challenges. I would love for you to tell us a story of one of your uh, companies. But before that, there is, uh, in this world, that opinion used to be unpopular, at least in the U.S., for a while because it was considered as taking away those traditional jobs that existed uh, in manufacturing, very much like what the IT sector was looked at as also displacing uh, traditional workers. Technology was taking away jobs. Uh, Same with uh, the focus on clean energy taking away traditional jobs. So can you first speak to kind of how do you create a shift in the mindset and then also tell us a story of a, a company that that you've been working with that has been able to transform uh, a part of this climate problem? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, transitions are hard and there's no way around that. And there are some people who, at least in the short term, are negatively impacted whenever we have big, big trans, you know, transitions and, you know, People will sort of flippantly sometimes, you know, point out, you know, the, you know, blacksmithing used to be a big industry, and um, and we don't need that anymore when people stopped using horses for transportation, um, you know. But that's, I mean, it's sort of a obvious example where, um, you know, it doesn't feel relevant to us anymore. But that's not that different than the transitions we experience, you know, today, and um, and a lot of fossil fuel based industries are going to change or go away um, in the in the you know in the years and decades to come and um, I think it's that's that's a painful thing especially you know you, you hear stories of people whose families have you know for generations have worked in an industry sector so um, I don't I don't take that lightly but there are things that planners can do to address that and talk you know address you know skill uh, development uh, opportunity development, and you know that's that's really the heart of the work for economic development folks. Um, you know, as far as as far as you know, companies um, in that we've worked with, a couple come to mind. Um, one is called the Renewal Workshop, um, which is working with um, clothing brands um, to really try to address you know the, the idea of a circular economy. Um, I, until until I worked with that company, I I had no idea how much clothing contributes to both climate emissions and in terms of manufacturing water use and and toxic chemicals in the dyes and and manufacturing processes and then landfill waste um, with fast fashion people wear clothes sometimes only once or twice or a few times before they end up um, you know getting handed down quickly and ultimately into landfills pretty quickly and um the renewal workshop is working with brands to create a more circular approach. Um, you know, initially working with things that are unsellable because of uh, a stain or a broken zipper or a, or a ripped hem, and actually repairing those clothes at a at a factory um, where they're able to essentially refurbish them, just like you'll you'll see refurbished electronics and other things where you know somebody just needs to to make a small you know, put a new key on a keyboard that, you know, that, that fell off and resell it as a refurbished item. They do the same thing with clothing and they're partnering with brands like the North Face um, and, um, and others to um, then resell those products either themselves um, through their own online platform or with the brand um, where the brands themselves are, are launching now kind of renewed clothing lines. Um, that's, you know, that's taking an old linear 
form of, you know, extract, make stuff, and then dispose of it, um, and, and really trying to create a, a loop. They're also looking and working with those brands to, to find other ways to to retake um, clothing back at its end of life and reuse the materials and those kinds of things. It's not easy, and you can't always reuse everything, but there's there's a lot of waste that can be eliminated. Uh, another um, another company that we're working with is um, that we, really we worked with early on in their development is ESS, which is a flow battery. They make a redox flow battery that uses iron um, in, in, their, in their battery material. And um, you can think of these as, as batteries the size of shipping containers. So these are these are not batteries for your for your car or for your phone. These are batteries that you know, provide backup to the grid. And um, one of the challenges with renewable energy, as a lot of people now know, is that the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And um, you need energy at times when when those sources aren't necessarily generating. <clears throat> so as, as the amount of total energy in our grid is, is, in, is increasingly coming from those sources, we have these problems where supply and demand don't meet up. And so large batteries can help shift some of that load where you can generate excess energy in the daytime from the, from solar or from other times when the wind is blowing and then store it in these batteries and then use it. Um, and, and so when people get home from work uh, in the winter, when the sun's gone shining, not shining anymore, but they need the heat and they cook and they're doing you know, laundry, um, they still have electricity. And so that's uh, where batteries are a significant part of, um, or energy storage in general, where batteries are one type of that, um, are really important. And this company, ESS, their technology uh, eight or nine years ago, and you know, one of the barriers, which I know we're gonna talk about barriers, but one of the barriers is that some of these technologies take a long time and are very expensive to develop. And this is a company that we worked with um, you know, and they, they had a clear vision in the, of, the, of the role that these batteries were going to be uh, playing in the future, um, even though the demand at the time wasn't that great. And, um, you know, they had a really long-term view of this. Um, and they, you know, it's a success story in, in a lot of ways from a purely financial business perspective, because it's a company that just uh, announced an acquisition through a SPAC uh, in the last few weeks um, that ultimately will value the company at over a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, they were two people working in a tiny little lab about the size of a closet, um, you know, 10 years ago. And, you know, that, um, that points to the, the, the persistence, but, um, but also just sort of, a, there's, a, there's a lot of things about their story that I think are, are important when we talk about um, the, the challenges in this sector. So there's a lot to dissect here. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, I think a lot of the incentivization of how we live today kind of uh, uh, add to the problem. For example, as long as there's really cheap clothing, and if you know the the kind of the science behind how these clothes are made, they're made for pennies on the dollars, right? Like when Macy's uh, announces a 75% uh, reduction, they're still making profit <laughs> with whatever reduction that they are offering you. They're not at a loss. And then even down the road, if it goes to like Ross, they still make a profit. So the the cost of manufacturing is so little that sometimes the economies of scale uh, or just the numbers are hard to meet when it comes to kind of uh, having the circular economy. How do you look at the unit economics of these models? And um, is, is there some kind of a support mechanism that needs to exist in the short run to make them viable? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, th there's a bunch of pieces to that, to that question. Um, and I think, you know, policy... 
um, climate policy is part of that. And you know, the most obvious way to address that is by um, sort of putting a price on the externalities caused by um, fossil fuels. So, you know, almost all of those clothes that we're talking about have synthetic fibers in them that ultimately come from oil. Um, and uh, they, um, they are contributing to climate change in a variety of ways, um, which has a huge economic cost for the planet, you know, in the, into the trillions of dollars. And um, we're not capturing that in the cost anywhere in the system, except in the, in, in the actual end result in the damage to our systems, into people's health and to people's lives. And um, so you know, one of the things we can do is to move the cost further upstream. And, uh, you know, the, the obvious things people point to are carbon taxes or cap, cap and trade systems. And those are politically unpopular in the United States, although they've been deployed and used in other places. Um, though that ultimately is, is the only way I see that we can, can really make it more expensive to do harmful things, which is what we're doing with fast fashion or with a lot of other things. <clears throat> Um, you know, driving cars, right? You know, the, the, the price of gas in the U.S. is is ridiculously low because um, we're not pricing in the impact um, into the into the cost. And there's a whole school of thinking and policy and equity issues and other things when we look at you know carbon taxes because it does disproportionately hit rural folks, for example, harder than than urban people who who you know who have alternatives. I can take the bus or ride my bike to work, but if I'm in a rural community and I need to, you know, to get to school 10 miles away from my kids uh, or 20 miles away, um, that's um, that's a hardship for me to have to pay more for gas. So th that's a that's a whole school of policy, and I, I feel like in the entrepreneurship community we we can't necessarily solve all of those problems, although they're all interconnected. Um, but policy can help make it a lot easier for. Um, Entrepreneurs to develop these technologies, um, uh, you know, by by offering incentives. And one of the things we're seeing today is, um, you know, the Biden administration is really prioritizing clean energy um, in a lot of ways. And one of those is by you know, providing more R and D support. And hopefully, we'll see more um, entrepreneurship support as well, specifically for the technologies that are solving um, environmental problems. Can we talk a little bit about the incentive for economic developers to offer these more non-traditional funds and how that can help revitalize uh, economies where jobs might be going away, where uh, Main Street businesses might have been adversely impacted through COVID? Now is an excellent time to, to introduce these uh, other industries that are focused on climate change, et cetera. So as entrepreneurs think about uh, retooling and uh, restarting, uh, how do you create that incentive for economic developers to find this uh, a viable option? You know, a lot of economic developers are working in a local community, in a region, um, and, you know, there are some areas of focus that make sense in those areas based on the natural resources they have, the areas of expertise they have, maybe in their university systems or in their existing industries where they've got clusters of companies. Um, and you know, there's, there's already a pretty well-established school of thought around cluster development where you can sort of take advantage of the economies of scale that come from, from you know, supporting companies that are working in industries that you already have strengths in. Um, 
you know, so that's, that's, that's one approach, but if you take that and then take it a step further to what, what problem can we be solving? Uh, I use the, I use the, the word twofer a lot. You know, we should be getting a twofer. We should be getting the economic benefit and solving another problem, whether it's, um, you know, our community has amazing medical research and we can be creating jobs and economic development and curing cancer, or we can be, um, you know, solving major transportation problems while creating jobs, or we can be reversing the climate crisis while creating jobs. Those are those are twofers in my mind. And when you're an economic developer and you're choosing where to put your dollars, why wouldn't you want to focus on areas where you're solving a societal problem, um, or at least not contributing to them by investing in your economic development dollars? And I think you know, you're just going to have to spend more money to, to solve the problem you're fueling if you're if you're investing in the wrong things. And so um, in my mind, that's that's one approach that economic developers can take is just recognize that they want to solve more than one problem. Choose what problems you want to try to invest in solving and um, and prioritize those in your in your economic development and you know, distribution of, of invest, you know, investments. Um, you know, and that includes supporting entrepreneurs as well as, you know, there's a whole other suite of tools that economic developers, you know, have in terms of, you know, industrial development and land development and, and you know, policy and all, all sorts of other things. But in terms of entrepreneurship, I think, um, you know, if you've got limited resources, you know, support the companies that are that are solving more than one problem. Now, when we talk about uh, the challenges, you said the biggest challenge is capital. Um for, for these entrepreneurs that want to get into this field. But there's also the whole IP and uh, access to information, access to university or research labs, et cetera. Uh, how do you look at these barriers to entry for an entrepreneur that might want to be solving for big challenges, but doesn't have the support infrastructure? They're not you know, in Carnegie Mellon or they're not in Caltech. Um, what does the roadmap look like for an everyday entrepreneur that says, I'm motivated, I can even figure out the capital situation. How do I get the expertise or even uh, the village that is needed to start something like this? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, some of these technologies are deeply technical and require some expertise, but um, you know, world-class research expertise exists everywhere and all over the place. And I think you know, there's there's amazing people at those universities you mentioned, um, but you know, in my experience, we've got amazing research capabilities at Oregon State University, Portland State University, Washington State University, University of Idaho. You know, places that aren't in that short list of of the you know the, the top five world class research universities in whatever you choose. Um, you know, although you know within those universities, you do have world class folks, and and so um, you know, you do need deep technical expertise to, to, you know, develop, you know, new batteries for batteries. You know, that's not something that I could just go choose to do. I don't have that background. Um, so, you know, to, to a certain extent, there's, there's some of that you can overcome with, with, you know, educational aspects, but it doesn't have to be from, from, you know, the handful of elite universities. Although those places, you know, do provide, you know, advantages, you know, some of which are, are warranted and some of which I think are, you know, just because of reputation um, and, and not because they're, the people there are more worthy or more deserving. Um, organizations like mine, you know, really, um, and I think there are a lot of them, you know, especially recently that are really trying to recognize that um, 
innovators and entrepreneurs don't all look the same. They don't all come with the same backgrounds and um, you know, your closeness to the problem. I mean, this is true for entrepreneurship anywhere. The more you understand the problem you're solving um, from your own personal experience, whether it's personal or professional or whatever, if you've, if you've felt that pain of that problem that you're solving, you're more qualified to, to solve it. And so I think that's, that's the thing we look for in entrepreneurs is that understanding of that. Um, you, can, you can bring in other technical expertise. Um, there's a certain amount of understanding you have to have in certain areas to, to, to really to, uh, operate, but some of that can be learned as you go. Um, some of it you can be, you know, you can hire in, but really the understanding of the problem you're solving and then um, you know, the, the passion to be an entrepreneur, which is not, not something that everybody has. Uh, you know, I, entrepreneurship is, is you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, almost a, a curse for some people because it's, you know, it, it consumes their lives. And, um, and that's really um, sometimes what it takes to be successful. I believe that entrepreneurship can actually be that secret sauce that can accelerate the innovation and adoption in um, in the field of uh, climate change and uh, helping protect our environment. Because if you look at the legacy of even the United States, all, a lot of the things that we take for granted today either came from the military or from individual entrepreneurs. If you think of even, you know, people like Kaufman and Kellogg and uh, all these other entrepreneurs that came before us, the Rockefeller, they significantly moved forward or even Edison or Ford moved innovation forward uh, using entrepreneurship. Uh, and even if you look at big corporations today, they all invest in incubators outside their R&D departments because innovation happens at a much uh, faster scale in these smaller settings uh, where you're not uh, encumbered by all of the paperwork and the red tape and lines of uh, people that you have to get approval from. So I think that entrepreneurship can be... Uh, really looked at as a viable way to accelerate some of the uh, solutions to the challenges. There's also a program, I don't know if you've heard of, where NASA uh, opened up their patent library to say, you know, come and pick a patent that we've uh, gotten and we will help you commercialize it and even mm -hmm. help uh, get it to a prototype or to uh, a customer discovery. I think that that intersection is really interesting because if you can find an entrepreneur, you don't have to motivate that person, right? They're self-motivated, kind of self-fueled. And you bring in innovation. Mm -hmm. I think that that can be uh, an accelerant for some of the problems you're trying to solve for. Is, is that something you all talk about? Yeah. And I think uh, the U.S. Department of Energy is, is trying to do some of those same things. Um, they have 17, I think, national labs that are part of the U.S. DOE. And um, the it's it's always challenging to figure out how do you take these things that are you know embedded and buried inside these you know labs full of thousands of people that have very high security requirements around them. Um, how do you get that out into the world um, to solve real problems? And um, you know there's there's some there's some great examples, but the, the number of successful examples pales you know in comparison to the number of actually really great ideas that exist in those labs um, and really powerful technologies. And so it, it's a it's a big challenge that the, the DOE has been trying to tackle. They have a, um, a, a person in charge of that who is responsible for that and, and an office called Office of Technology Transitions that um, has programs. Um, they just, my organization was one of several around the country that just last week um, 
uh, received a, a grant from them to help facilitate some of those kinds of transitions. And we'll, we'll be working with um, uh, federally funded research institutions um, as part of this project to try to help get their technologies out into the world to, into entrepreneurs' hands more readily. Um, so there are things like that that they're trying to do. They've, they've done experiments with, uh, with opening up their patent library where you can essentially get a, a short-term license for $1,000 um, to their technology um, to go kind of tinker with it for a year. And then you, you, know, then you can negotiate um, a license or something like that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there, are, there are things that, that the, the federal government is trying to do in that, in that realm. And, uh, and we're part of a network of other organizations like us around the country that are focused on clean energy um, and clean technology um, incubation and acceleration that are um, you know, trying to encourage the federal government to put more money into that side of things, you know, not just the, the core R&D, but really focusing on the, the, the tech transfer function to, to be sure that these things actually get out and solve real problems. Yeah, uh, if you don't mind, just uh, giving a, a, f- a few sound bites on uh, what are the other places that economic developers listening to this podcast can go to, uh, because even though people like us have heard of SBIR, STTR, all of these other uh, places where you can get government funding to even prototype an idea, you could get NSF funding, even if you just have a slide deck that shows how you're going to innovate in, in a new area. Uh, for economic developers, this can be a real a viable way to bring new money and investment into their community and be in the forefront of some of this uh, cutting-edge technology, revitalize rural communities, etc. Uh, where would you say they should start if they want to go on this journey of kind of revitalizing using technology to drive climate change versus the traditional, let's go find an Amazon HQ2 to come into our city? Right. Well, um, you know, federal federal dollars are, are you know are there's a lot of them. There's you know federal government has a lot of money and um, uh, accessing them though can be tricky. It's not the kind of thing where you just decide I'm going to go get a federal grant and you go get one next week. Um, it can take months of planning um, and sometimes you know multiple attempts where you may only get one shot per year to 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 try. So it's a long game that you have to play if you want to bring federal funds into your into your efforts. You know, the benefit is it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars of, of federal funding that you can access. Um, the SBIR program you mentioned is a really powerful one. It's uh, between three and four billion dollars a year of non-dilutive capital going directly to small businesses to do R&D work coming from 11 different federal agencies. Um, every, every federal agency that has a large R&D budget is required to set aside part of their money to go to small businesses. Um, just like Organizations like mine getting federal grants is hard. It's hard for businesses to access SBIR. And I really recommend getting help uh, and applying from um, support organizations that provide that. And there are um, about half of the states have a, a, an entity that's funded by the Small Business Administration to help companies access SBIR program. Um, if you go to sbir.gov, you can learn more about SBIR in general. And then there's... Um, this program is called Federal and State Technology Partnership, and it uses the acronym FAST. And there's, like I said, 20-some states have a FAST program um, in their state to actually help companies learn about and access SBIR grants. I encourage people to take advantage of that. Um, a lot of states also have um, Federal Procurement Technology Assistance Centers, or PTACs, P-T-A-C, um, and those can provide help as well. 
Um, a lot of people, I think, don't access services enough. Sometimes small business development centers, um, universities have incubators and accelerator programs. Um, those are those are examples of, of kinds of things that um, that that companies can access. Um, economic development entities should look at the the U.S. Economic Development Administration. They have a program called Build to Scale that offers grants once per year um, that are specifically focused on ecosystem development within regions. Um, and then there's economic development cluster um, grants given by the Small Business Administration. So there's, there's a lot of federal, federal possibilities there. Um, there's a national organization called SSTI um, that we belong to that, that provides support to uh, state and nonprofit organizations, sort of like, like a professional association, um, um, which is a great resource as well. Yes, so we're also members of uh, SSDI, and uh, oh, we, yeah, we work with a lot of groups that work with ICOR and and other uh, nodes that can help you get to uh, SBR, SDTR. Our uh, uh, the feedback we've received is that if you don't go through one of these channels, it's going to be really, really hard to get FaceTime or even get your uh, ideas in front of uh, the decision makers. Um, so yeah. Uh, great to hear you talk about that. And you're such a wealth of knowledge in this space. Uh, I feel like you need to write a book on <laughs> how do you get uh, federal uh, dollars into your community because they can be in ma many cases free dollars that uh, that can significantly revitalize uh, local economies. Yeah, my, my main advice is keep trying, right? Because you, when you when you get funded, it's usually in your second or third attempt, not not your first. So. Uh, it's easy to get discouraged because it takes, you know, you can spend months putting a proposal together and, and get nothing. Um, but, you know, if you seek feedback and then really try to incorporate that, um, you know, I think your odds increase significantly on your second or third attempt. Yeah. And there are these uh, university centers that actually do like uh, file for or help you apply for SBIR. Some of them have really good track records and they'll tell you uh, every department is different and they look at different criteria. You can't sub simply uh, submit the same idea to three different departments because they all have different evaluation criteria. So I think going through one of them could also be a significant game changer. Uh, but like you said, you might have to go a couple of times uh, before you get it. Uh, before we close, uh, I want you to kind of just give us a soundbite on if you had to redo this whole journey again, what would be the one thing you would do differently so that people listening and are starting can avoid some of the same uh pitfalls you might have encountered in kind of bringing, uh, I know you didn't found the incubator, but bringing uh, it to life, uh, having this at the forefront of climate change, what would you do differently? We've been thinking a lot, as many organizations have, um, about racial equity as part of our work in the last few years. Um, and, you know, I, I would say, I wish... I wish we'd started that process earlier and built it into our work right from the start. We were focused on what we thought was a big enough problem, you know, environmental challenges and climate climate change as as, as problems. Um, I've really come to learn how interconnected the climate crisis is with with racial justice. You know, the, the root cause of both of those has to do with you know the way our systems, our economic systems, and our societal systems value people and value nature um, and um, you know, we've got extractive systems today and exploitative systems today and i think um, you know for me learning that um, really 
would have, I think, influenced the way we built our programs right from the start to be more inclusive and more focused on um, looking in more places and in different places to, to both find innovation and then different ways of supporting innovators. Um, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, they're all going to be these PhD types uh, coming out of universities, um, which is where a lot of climate change, you know, technologies um, are sort of expected to come from. And I think, you know, we've, we've seen um, not always the case. And, um, you know, that, that would be the big, biggest thing I would go back and, and do right from the start is, is just realize um, you can't solve the climate crisis without tackling racism, I think. How do you do that? How do you create uh, this level playing field? I'm curious now. Uh, <laughs> what is the, I, I see the problem, uh, you know, uh, social justice is at the forefront of economic development, 100%. Uh, but how do you uh, create more intentional pathways into the kind of work you're doing uh, and address also social justice? Um, that's it's I won't say I've got the answer yet because we're, we're working on it. I mean, I think part of it is recognizing, um, you know, one, that a lot of the solutions will be smaller and more incremental. Um, there are. You know, it's easy to try to say, you know, we're trying to find a way to, you know, replace fossil fuels in vehicles, right, which are these really big technologies. Um, the way they get deployed is, you know, in individual communities and in individual households and really understanding that not for just some large slice of demographics, but in, you know, individual places, understanding how technologies are used, how products are used and finding niches um, within those places for business opportunities. Um, is, is one way. Understanding with each technology, you know, who's benefiting from this and who's being harmed by this um, and asking that question is really, in, you know, can provide a lot of insights because, you know, climate change does not affect everyone equally. Um, it is disproportionately impacting low-income communities, people of color, um, you know, uh, the, the certain parts of the world, um, you know, the, so it's, it's, not, it's not proportional. Um, and so I think understanding that and then, um, you know, for us at a very practical level, trying to source deal flow for our investing, for example, um, you know, recognizing that black and brown entrepreneurs um, aren't necessarily going to find us through the channels that we've found all of the other entrepreneurs that we support. So we've really reached out to organizations that are focused exclusively on black and brown entrepreneurs and women entrepreneurs and underserved populations, but who aren't focused on climate change or aren't focused on clean tech. And so, you know, out of a hundred entrepreneurs that they, that, you know, walk through their door, there might be one that that's, that's a good fit for us, but that, you know, that that's one. And that um, is a way that we can try to partner with those organizations and say, you know, you guys do what you do better than anybody we have some unique expertise that we can offer and we'd love to help provide help to that one company out of the hundred that you're, that you're working with. Um, because, you know, that's, that's our effort to try to get more, uh, more diversity into our pipeline of companies um, and, uh, you know, potentially solve problems in a way that we might not have otherwise been able to. Thank you for sharing that insight. I think that's a very practical way to go about it uh, and be intentional about uh, inclusivity, right? A lot of times, you can't go with a default answer and hope that uh, black and brown founders will apply. You got to be a lot more intentional about it and look in places, the non-traditional places uh, to make sure that they're included. 
Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could go on for double the time. Uh, but thank you for joining us today. Uh, we've learned a lot and we'll add in the show notes some of the uh, information that you've provided as a way to uh, continue the conversation. If people would like to reach out to you, how would you like them to do that? Um, they can reach me. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I take direct messages via Twitter is an easy way. Um, it's at D-S-K-E-N-N-E-Y-1. And um, my organization's uh, Virtue Lab, V-E-R-T-U-E-L-A-B, virtuelab.org. Or um, uh, you can find the organization on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. And people are welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Okay. We will have all of this in the show notes so uh, uh, people can easily connect with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Polraj. Special thanks to guest David Kenny for joining us. Show notes by creative director Jackie Dietrich. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.